may not have a film fixation, but we're here for a noir education. Welcome to A Real Education Noir. I am Melissa and I'm here with... Allie. And we are here today to watch a movie called Gun Crazy, also known as Deadly is the Female. So, so what, what an alternative title. I'm excited now. I know, right? I mean, I was already like, Gun Crazy? Well, that sounds interesting. Uh, viewer, listeners, not yeah. viewers, when nobody's watching us, thank goodness. <laughs> um, listeners, I obviously have no idea about anything to do with this this particular movie, but I was like, okay, gun, gun crazy, that sounds cool. Deadly is the female sounds even better. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Indeed. I'm into this one. <laughs> yeah, if I remember right, Deadly is the female... Uh, was the original title of this movie. And then when it was re-released a few years later, it went to gun crazy. But ah, yeah, the first one I yeah, think is yeah. the better of the two. But if you go looking for it now, it's going to be called gun crazy. Uh-huh. So, so we're going with gun crazy for the moment. All right. Gun crazy. So Allie, what do you know about this movie? Nothing. Yay. <laughs> Except it may have guns in it. Yes. And, I'm and- assuming there are some guns and now I'm assuming there is a deadly female. Yes. So, yes. <laughs> Again, it's like I'm already sold. I'm like, put a put a gun in a woman's hands, a, a capable woman's hands, and I'm I'm like, yes, please give me put this film in my eyeballs. Yes, yeah, it's it's fun. I actually saw this movie oh at least a decade ago at the Budnamathon one okay. fine night, and uh, it is a very interesting film noir. It was made in 1950. It was made uh, by a director named Joseph H. Lewis, who was one of those uh, directors who often made very low-budget stuff, but he elevated it with style. And this is probably his best-known movie. That's going to be evident when watching it. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about he made the, how he made the movie. But it's, um, it's a lot of fun. It is kind of based on the Bonnie and Clyde story. Ooh. So, so the, you know, it's... No, there, there's no, going to be really some guns. I'm here for this. I'm so here for this. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, I'm going to say, after we watch the movie, we're going to go deep down the trivia rabbit hole on this one because there is some awesome stuff going on in here. So, um, dear listeners, hopefully you will also join us in a viewing of Gun Crazy. It's a little harder to find, but um, I'm pretty sure right now it's on iTunes, uh, among other streaming places. And uh, if you can't find it under Gun Crazy, you might be able to find it under Deadly as a Female. So, we are going to go watch Gun Crazy, and uh, we'll be back with you in a couple minutes. Bye, everybody! are back. What did you think, Allie? I liked it a lot. It, I mean, things you will never hear me say, I like that movie, but you know, <laughs> it's not like you're going to pick one that's going to be a dud, but you yeah. know, I, I really enjoyed it. It It's a little different than a lot of the ones that we've seen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I wasn't quite, I mean, I followed along just fine, Yeah, but I at times had trouble going, okay, 
what is the actual motivation here? <laughs> like, which end of the spectrum is this lady on? Guns and sex. Guns and sex, is, yeah. yeah. I thought for sure that she was just playing him the whole time. Mm-hmm. And then she has the perfect opportunity to just like, fuck off. And she's just like, no, mm-hmm. I have to go back. I love him so much. I'm like, bitch, you crazy? Take the money and go. <laughs> what are you doing? Yes. Like, I, I'm rooting for this guy, but you need to leave. Like, you got so much money. Just go. No. <laughs> no. They're, they're not in a healthy relationship for no, each other. No, they're really not. Really, really. They're no, not. No. <laughs> no. I couldn't decide what she was thinking at any given time. Yeah. What her real motivation was besides move the plot forward. Right. Which, you know, I guess is a valid int- <laughs> a valid motivation for any character in a film at any time. <laughs> that was my only complaint. That, I, that That's the only part that made it hard for me to follow. I was going, I can't decide if this is logical or if she's just like that off the deep end that she doesn't make sense. Yeah, it, Which well, is a valid interpretation, I feel. Given how simple the other characters are, it's hard to get attack on her. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, everybody else is very straightforward. It's like, is she complicated or is she a plot device? Or is she crazy? Yes. Which yes. is entirely possible in this era of films. Yes. Just random crazy female. Yeah, uh, because, yeah. you know, oh, we've got hormones and, and, and uteruses <laughs> that, you know, make us hysterical. Yeah, yeah, we're we're... Completely unintelligible most of the time. Yes, that, that's... 90% of the time, nobody knows what to make of us. It's, <laughs> it's fine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I do really like this one, though, because this is a movie that was made very, very cheaply, very quickly. Yeah. And there's something, like, just down and dirty about it. Yeah, it, yeah. You you know these two characters are boning each other. Oh, like with absolutely. There is, there is no... No doubt. I mean, a lot of films noir, you know, you watch the stars. You're like, and are they? You go, yeah, or, well, are they both, or is it like so much unrequited sexual tension or just, just or, sexual tension that, that is yeah. unresolved that's driving these two to be like, so what are you doing? Why are you doing it? Yeah. Is it because you, could you, would you just bone like 90% of this film wouldn't be necessary if you guys would just like do it and, right. and be done. But right. this one, I was like, oh no, they are so doing it. Yeah. 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 The, the only the only one more blatant is the postman always raised twice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, Ooh, was the, that was the that was the only one more blatant about the fact <laughs> these two are doing it. <laughs> There's your bar. It's like this was yeah. a notch below postman always always rings twice. Like that was it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and and it's a movie that does a lot with very little. Yes. I, um, yes. I mean, I, I brought it up a little bit in the intro where uh, the director, uh, Joseph H. Lewis, was kind of known for doing a lot with very little. He often did very low-budget movies very quickly. Um, This particular one was shot in 30 days on $400,000. Wow. Just very, very tiny. The uh, first bank robbery, the one that's one long, unbroken shot from inside the car. Yeah. He did that... Because um, the original script had like this 17-page shootout in the bank. Oh, wow. And to shorten the the shooting time and to uh, bring the budget back in line, he went, hmm, if I do this as one unbroken shot and I don't even go into the bank, meaning we don't have to have a set or a location for that, well, we can just do that in a day. <laughs> yeah. And 
And you wind up with this great scene. I mean, usually when this film gets brought up in film classes or by like Martin Scorsese mm-hmm. or somebody doing a film noir documentary, when you see anybody mention gun crazy, it's that scene. Yeah. That, that unbroken shot where they're driving around and literally the only people who knew who, what was going on that day were the actors. So... The uh, film crew had gutted the back of the car. They stuck all the uh, film equipment in. The microphones are fed through the sun visors in the car. Oh, sure. And there was a boom mic on top of the car to capture the dialogue outside when she goes outside to talk to the cop. But otherwise, it it was just one shot, and they got it. And I've heard it said it was in one take. I'm not sure if it was in one take. But it literally, they went in and did it. And you hear at the end, uh, somebody scream, they robbed the bank or whatever it is. That was a bystander. That was a random pedestrian who thought she was actually witnessing a bank robbery. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. It's cool. It's cool. No, that was a great shot. There's a lot of really good shots as, as we are progressing in this podcast, I'm starting to notice these things more as I'm sure you've noticed because I comment on them. I'm like, Ooh, that was framed nicely. Whereas before Mm -hmm. I was just like, you would mention something in an earlier podcast and you would throw this shot and be like, God, I didn't even notice that. Like, <laughs> it just was completely lost in me. As we're going on, yeah. I'm, I'm looking for these things. And I'm like, oh, that was framed so nicely. Oh, yeah. There's and a lot of those good ones in this one. Yeah. And uh, the the camera is very dynamic. It moves. Yeah. Um, very. There, there are a lot of really dynamic shots, low shots, like up at the car and yeah. up at people or zooming in in a particular way and, you know, just emphasizing the emotion of the scene. One and, of my yeah. favorites was the shot um, back at the traveling show um, after our, our protagonist shoots out the mirror. Yeah. And we've got the, the, the guy running the carnival standing yeah. in front of the mirror looking presumably back at at. Bart. Yeah. Um, we've got Packy looking back at Bart, you know, but it, to us, he's looking, we can see his reflection in the mirror. And that shot was just awesome. Yeah, beautiful. I really enjoyed that. And little things like that just keep cropping up all over in this film where it's just mm-hmm. like, ooh, you took the time on that. That's nice. Yeah. Which, considering it was a budget. Yeah. Those don't always get done when you're working on a budget. It's just like, it's not refined. Yeah. And, and th- this is th- very well polished for something on such a low budget. Yeah. And the beautiful thing is, is when you handed something like this to somebody like Joseph H. Lewis, the limitations of the budget become a boon. Like, if I remember right, the the climax in the foggy swamp was supposed to be a lot more elaborate. Uh-huh. And to bring that back in and make it cheaper to do and faster to do... It's like, well, if we just obscure everything in fog, it'll and you know we don't have to cast a lot of actors, we don't have a whole, have a lot going on. You just hear stuff going on. Yeah, yeah. The implication that they are surrounded, yeah. works so well. Yeah. and and that brought more tension to the scene. Mm-hmm. It worked just phenomenally. Oh yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, this movie is super pulpy. I, know, oh, I mean, let, yes. let's make no qualms about no, no, no. it. I mean, there there are some scenes you watch and go, "Wow, this is like beyond soap opera." This there is kind of daffy, but There were definitely some scenes Ooh. that I was snarking on pretty hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, granted, mm-hmm. I've I've been drinking some champagne, so I'm snarking extra hard. But you know, <laughs> there were some scenes I was just like <laughs> Okay. Oh yeah, it's it's pretty purple. In it, terms it's of it's awesome though. I like it. It's not snappy, but it's yeah. it's 
almost eloquent. Yeah. I think is the word I'm looking for in the dialogue. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, some of it's a little on the nose, but it's, it's pretty, you know, it's, it's, it's stylistic. Yeah, it's, it's, it's enjoyable, for it's like sure. One, it's like one of those gems in the rough. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's not like a perfectly cut diamond, like mm-hmm. a Humphrey Bogart uh, yeah. vehicle or anything like that. It's, it's... It's no out know. of the past. Yeah, it's not it's out not, of the past, man. It's not like oh, that. Oh, no. my gosh. Mm-hmm. That's I'm good sorry. stuff. Out of the past. Oh, it's so oh, good. I'm so happy with that, Oh, so good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you like the one next week. Oh, yeah, yay. Really well. Yay. But yeah, this is like just down on the ground, fast filmmaking, yeah. and there's a certain vitality to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it shows. And, yeah, and and in the age when most of the movies people were seeing were studio productions. I mean, this was a studio, but it was like a right. really low. Ra- this was this was a Frank King production, <laughs> so it was, <laughs> it, it was pretty cheaply done. Yeah. But yeah, there's there's life to it. Yeah, there's a certain life to it. Yeah. It's it's cool. I, I yeah. really like this one. That was well worth the watch. That was really good. I, I actually have to say, I feel like the secondary title is more accurate. Deadly Gun- is the female? No, no, no. Gun Crazy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm, yes. I'm totally in with that. Like, Deadly is the female I, I would I totally subscribe to if I felt like she was... I mean, she's still clearly willfully manipulating oh, yeah. him. But she also clearly loves him. Yeah. So she's not just doing it for money, which if she were doing it for money, I'd be like, yep, Deadly is the female. That is the that is your title. Why did you change it? But no, she – maybe it started out just I'm going to do this for myself mm-hmm. and then rolled into – it eventually perhaps rolls into the – actually, I really love him, so I'm not going to take this money and just leave. So I feel like gun crazy is accurate because they yeah. are both – Gun crazy. Yeah, they're both completely irrational. And it, it, yeah, and it totally starts out with, because I thought the whole thing was going to be like told in flashbacks or something at Mm -hmm. first. And uh, I was like, yeah, Gun Crazy is a very accurate title for this film. Yeah. So I I don't feel like that was a poor decision on their part. For once, usually when I'm like, why did you change that title? Yeah. But I'm also used to like (laughs) seeing asylum films where I'm like, yeah, you just threw like some parody name of some popular film on a film that has nothing to do with that. Okay, guys. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Seriously. Seriously. Disclaimer, I love asylum films with all my heart. (laughs) So much. (laughs) Well, maybe we have to have you on Xanadu talking about asylum movies. Oh, yeah. Okay. Dear listeners, watch for that one on another (laughs) podcast. So... <laughs> My secret shame has been revealed. Oh, there's nothing shameful no, about sorry. loving something. No shame. No, no shame. shame. No shame. <laughs> there are no guilty pleasures. There are Just only pleasures. pleasures. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh yeah. gosh. Yeah. So uh, there is so much to say trivia-wise about yes, this movie. Okay. I, I, okay. okay. So Melissa informs me she has amazing trivia for this one because I was working late. And I'm like, oh, shit. I'm going to be, like, so late to this thing. So and, sorry. So sorry. And then I roll in and Melissa's like, I got so much trivia. I, I'm, like, still typing. It's like, I, you won't believe this Oh, my one. God. This is so, going to be awesome. So I'm super excited about this trivia, everybody. Okay. <laughs> I'll start with the one that I already dropped on you, which yeah. is – um, in the intro, the the kid, the fourteen year old Bart, is played by Rusty Tamblin. So 
AKA Russ Tamblin, who, um, if you recognize that name and can't quite place it, um, he's got a credit list as long as your arm. He is still yeah. working today. He yeah. is still acting. Um, he was in Django Unchained. He was in Drive as Doc. He was uh, the gang leader in West Side Story. Yeah. When you're a jet. Um, uh-huh. He was Gideon in Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Yep. He was Luke in the original Haunting, the Robert Wise Haunting. Okay, okay. And he was Dr. Jacoby in Twin Peaks. Oh, <laughs> snap. With the two different colored lenses and those oh, glasses. Yeah. Um, That's super relevant to me right now because I'm actually watching Twin Peaks for the first yes, time. And yes, <laughs> And I am I am so hit and miss yeah. with Twin Peaks. I have to like sit down and actually do a full. But yes. Yeah. I, when you said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the guy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I recognize him from many of those other roles that you mentioned, but like, oh, yeah, also Twin Peaks. Jacobi. That was a thing. Yeah. When I went through the cast list, I went... Russ Tamlin, Russ Tamlin. That name is why? Oh, because I've seen his name on a goddamn title screen every single morning for a month. <laughs> that is why. <laughs> Surprise! Because he's Dr. Jacoby in Twin Peaks and I've been watching them every morning. So he's super interesting. He started acting when he was 10. He has had a career ever since. He started on stage and then he did radio, then Hollywood. He's a triple threat. He can sing, he can dance and act. And just awesome. So it was really kind of fun seeing him as a little kid. Oh, and also the father of Amber Tamlin. I thought oh, so. Yeah. I thought so, yeah. but I'm like, I, I need to I need to cite my sources here and oh, verify. Yeah. But yes, okay. Oh, yeah. I was like, I was pretty sure that that was an actual relation, not just, well, they have the same name in there in showbiz. Probably. <laughs> yeah. Very likely. <laughs> Which can go both ways oh, easily. <laughs> but yes. Well, with a name like Tamlin, it was... Very yes, likely. yes, yes. So um, pulling it back, Joseph H. Lewis, um, the, the director, he also had a pretty long career. He started as an, a camera assistant in the 1920s. So he started in cameras. He knew cameras. In fact, his father was an optometrist, so he liked new oh, lenses. Yes. Um, but from there in the 1930s, he moved to being an editor and he just worked his way up. Uh, by 1937, he became a director, and from then, uh, he was on full contract at Universal, worked for them for a while, and then did this for uh, Frank King, and then had a heart attack in 1953, slowed him down a bit, he stopped directing films in 1958, then he did some TV, retired in about 1966, and then he just had a long retirement, deep sea fishing. Nice. <laughs> we should all be so lucky. Uh, one of the th- fun things about him, though, he used to be nicknamed Wagon Wheel Joe. Okay. Because he used to direct a lot of westerns, and one of his favorite shots was shooting through the spokes of a wheel ah. at, at the action. And you actually saw it a little bit in Gun Crazy, because you see shots through the steering wheel of the car. Yeah. Yeah. And... You know, like I said, he goes through yeah. those dynamic shots where you're, you're looking through things or any opportunity to, or, you know, even, I mean, you can extrapolate that to putting the camera inside the car and locking it inside the car and being able to see out the windows yes. and and moving it around and shooting through stuff and into windows. Yeah. So anyway, interesting little director. Yeah. Also, let's see. Mm-hmm. 
I'm saving some of the big ones here. Uh, we'll go into back into the actors. Peggy Cummins, who played the deadly Lori, female. Yeah, yeah Lori. Uh, didn't have a very long career. She was acting for yeah. about... Well, she she started in 1940. She ended about 1965. Didn't do very many movies. Uh, she was Welsh. She yep. came to America, started acting, and then um, in 1950, like right after this movie, she returned to London and started making British films. Ah. But she retired in 1965 because she eventually married a man who was born into a wealthy family and she just retired and she's actually still alive she's still around yeah, and yeah she's like what 91 or yeah, something like that yeah she's appearing at film festivals every once in a while nice. and um a couple years ago they played gun crazy at a film noir festival out on the west coast mm-hmm. and she went out there and watched it for the first time in like decades oh lovely <laughs> with the with the actors uh she was also her other claim to fame is a movie called curse of the demon by jacques turner mm. jacques turner being the guy who did cat people yes so she she had a few hits yeah. kind of on the you know on the minor you and know the not quite there, yeah. yeah 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 notable for the film nerds yes but not big name movies now she was paired with John Dahl, mm-hmm. who played Bart as the adult. He really had a short career. He only did like eight movies. Oh, really? He, um, although the one that most people know him from is Alfred Hitchcock's Rope. He was one of the two college students in Rope. He was the confident one. Huh. Uh, dear listeners, if you're unfamiliar with Rope, Rope is the Hitchcock film that is filmed to look like it's one single unbroken take, and it all takes place in one apartment in real time. Oh, okay. Yeah, yes. Yeah. I, is, I've not seen it, but I... Oh, it is super yeah. cool. Um, and John Dahl is pretty much the lead villain in that one. He started out at, on Broadway. Um, his debut was pretty stellar because he started in 1944 in a, a Broadway play called Dear Ruth, which ran for 680 performances. Jeez. And then when he went to, to Hollywood, his first role was in The Corn is Green, and he got a Best Supporting Actor nomination. Hey, not too shabby. Yeah. And then... His career just never really got traction. He made a few films and then it but was But now gone. I now I know why I was like, oh, God, I, yeah. who is this dude? I know his face because yep. he he is a as I like to call it repeat offender. <laughs> this is this is my term that I like to apply to anybody who's done more than one Law and Order. But uh, in this case, yes. then in this case, he's done four different Perry Masons, mm-hmm. which I have been watching a lot of on MeTV with my father lately. And I know I just saw one of these episodes that he was that he was in, and I was like, God, why? Yeah, what is it about the face? I know this guy. Yeah, that's why. And it's a super recognizable Perry Mason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, those teeth. Yeah, he's got that smile. That that. Yeah, yeah, and that long face. Yeah, and, yeah, a lot of character to his face. Yes, I yes, like so. him as an actor. Yeah, he he's not a supernaturalistic actor. No, but he could have had a really great career as a yeah. character actor yeah. if he'd found the right roles yeah and he just didn't. just didn't yeah he just didn't so another really fun thing oh boy <laughs> i've got i've got two big ones here and it's Ooh. like which one do i lead with i'm okay. excited all right so um one of the people that they had serving as an advisor on this movie i love this is a gentleman named al jennings okay al jennings 
Okay, I'll start it this way. He started out in his adulthood. He was a prosecuting attorney from 1892 to 1894 in the Oklahoma Territory. And then he went into a law firm with his brothers. And then, you know, one day a rival attorney came in and shot the brothers. And oh, then, like you do. But, and the, the guy was somehow acquitted. So uh, uh, Al Jennings left and became a ranch hand. And then, you know, as a ranch hand, he uh, joined a gang of outlaws and became a train robber in 1897. So one of the advisors on this movie was a bona fide Old West train robber. That's amazing. <laughs> okay. So now I totally get why you were so excited was, about this one. He was 85 years old at the time that yeah, he was working yeah. on Gun Crazy. But yeah, so he was a he was a train robber in 1897. Um, he was active with this gang for like less than a year. By November, he got lo- wounded by the law and then got captured, put in prison. Oh, get this. Okay, so he gets put in prison. Eventually, he gets transferred to Ohio. He winds up getting put in prison with O. Henry. The what? <laughs> so, O. Henry <laughs> and he are friends in prison. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> you can't make this shit up. I know, right? Oh, my God. So, eventually, uh, L. Jennings gets freed in 1902 on a weird technicality. And then he gets a full pardon by Theodore Roosevelt in 1904. Okay. And so after that, he, um, through O. Henry, he published a story called Holding Up a Train. And then... <laughs> That's not wrote, on the nose at all. <laughs> he wrote a novel about, that was loosely based on his life about, you know, robbing trains and stuff. And, <laughs> and, wow. and then, And then in like 1908, he went to Hollywood. He did a film called The Bank Robbery. <laughs> 1911, he goes into politics. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Hey. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. What? <laughs> he goes into politics. He runs for a few offices. Oh he never gets God. anywhere to the credit of the American people. Wow. But- <laughs> for once, we did something right. <laughs> so he retires from politics a couple years later oh, and wow. started making westerns in Hollywood. And ever since then, <laughs> he was silent film star, advisor. <laughs> He he was around till like 1961 when he died at the age of 98. Can we just have a musical about him? I know, like, right? Okay, like just I, I I just want like just this great American musical written about this man who started as a prosecutor and then robbed trains and was like, I'm just gonna write books and movies and everything about yeah. the fact that I robbed trains. Also, let's go into office. This sounds yeah. like a this sounds like a winner. <laughs> I was in law. It's fine. That would be what a great musical that would be. I want oh, that one. Oh God, yes. Like move over Hamilton. Oh yes. <laughs> oh yes. Oh wow. That's a, okay. So what else do you have? If you were like, which oh, one gotta, do wait, I lead with? This is great. This is great. Okay. Because that was awesome. All right. This is going to have a little bit of a lead in. So okay. All right. There are two screenwriters credited on this film. Okay. The first one is McKinley Canton, who was also the guy who wrote the screenplay for The Best Years of Our Lives, which won seven Oscars. It's a fantastic Mm -hmm. movie, post-war film about the horrors of being a soldier and coming back from war and trying to readjust to society. Yeah. It's a great movie. It really is. He was a war correspondent in World War II. He was at the liberation of Buchenwald. I mean, this guy is the real deal. And where this movie comes from, he wrote the original short story okay. that Gun Crazy was based upon. Now, the 
other screenwriter credited is Millard Kaufman. Uh, Millard Kaufman uh, was the guy who wrote Bad Day at Black Rock, which is a fantastic Western, which sadly isn't heard about much these days. But here's the great part. Millard Kaufman revealed in 1992 that he didn't write this movie. What? He was a front for Dalton Trumbo. Are you shitting Dalton me? Dalton Trumbo oh my God. was behind this film. So, dear listeners, if you have not seen the film Trumbo yet, here's What's the actual shit. Here is <laughs> the story of Dalton Trumbo. It's like, yes, we get to talk about Dalton Trumbo now. Yes, we have talked go. so much about the House on American Activities Committee. Yes, we have. Without talking about Dalton Trumbo. And yeah. now here we are. Yeah, how did we, how did we manage that yeah. for this long? Yeah. Please, by all means, educate all, right. all of us, please. All right. So, Dalton Trumbo... He is the guy who wrote so many of the really hallmark scripts in Hollywood, and he could write just about any genre. Mm -hmm. He's just very highly regarded as a screenwriter. So his story is um, he had a very modest upbringing. Uh, he can't, he like dropped out of college. He just ran out of money. His father died, and he had to you know start working to support the family. And he was doing stuff like repossessing motorcycles and bootlegging and doing just about everything just to try to get money coming in. Yeah. Eventually started working in a bakery overnight and then writing during the day and, and just wrote and wrote and wrote until he started selling stuff and he started selling short stories to newspapers. Eventually he wrote his first novel in 1934. It's called Eclipse. And then he was hired by Warner Brothers as a reader in 1934. And what readers did was they vetted all the scripts that were coming in. So he, he would read the scripts, summarize them, and go, this one's good, this one's bad. That sort of thing. Eventually he worked his way up to a screenwriter. And his first film was in 1936. It was a film called The Road Gang. About that time he met his wife, who was like his sole partner for the rest of his life. Her name was Cleo. They had three kids, including uh, Christopher Trumbo, who is a TV writer now. He's still around. No, wait, he passed away. But he eventually carried on the family name mm -hmm. in screenwriting. But by the time World War II came around, Dalton Trumbo was the highest paid screenwriter in Hollywood. Wow. He was very well respected. He could write anything. He was good. He was also a communist. Oops. <laughs> Yeah, in 1939, you know, when U.S. was still kind of waffling about getting into the war, Dalton Trumbo wrote a book called Johnny Got His Gun. Ah. Yeah, which is, it's an amazing book. It's a very dark book. I, I actually did read it very recently, but it was one of the very few pieces of anti-war propaganda that, well, not propaganda, but it was right. very anti-war at a point when people were trying to urge the U.S. to go into war and participate yeah. in World War II. So the Communist Party was basically against Roosevelt at the time because they had basically turned pro-peace, which means they weren't against Hitler, which was starting to be a very unpopular <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, decision. And uh, also, most people had fled the Communist Party by that time just because the USSR had signed a pact with Hitler. Mm -hmm. and, and most of the communists in the, uh, the US went, fuck it, I'm out. Trumbo signed up after that because they were doing the pro-peace thing. And he mm -hmm. was very much a pacifist at that point. Now, when 
Hitler actually uh, started invading things, Trumbo actually called his publisher and asked them to recall Johnny Got His Gun. Like, they pulled copies from the stores, they stopped publishing it, and... Wow. Uh, yeah, so... So, yeah, that, yeah, that's a change of heart. That was a big change of heart. So, you know, once we actually did go to war, he started supporting the war effort. And if you look at the screenplays he wrote during the war, most of them are extremely patriotic. They're, mm. you know, like, rah, 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 let's support our troops, that sort of thing. So... The House of Un-American Activities Committee. It originally started in 1934 to investigate German-Americans as Nazis and to investigate Klan members. But by 1946, it became a standing committee and started going after communists. And that's when they started going after Hollywood. And it's interesting that they went after Hollywood, not Broadway. Because there were a ton of <laughs> communists hanging out in Broadway. Right. But Broadway but, doesn't have the, the reach. Broadway doesn't have the Hollywood. reach of Hollywood. And yeah. they wouldn't have gotten the same press if they'd gone after Broadway actors. Yeah. So they focused on Hollywood. Now, Dalton Trumbo was part of the Hollywood Ten. The Hollywood Ten were a group of ten writers. Uh, well, writers, producers, and directors who went in front of the committee in 1947 and they completely refused to answer any questions. All 10 of them. They just banded together and wasted the committee's time. So it was Alva Bessie, Herbert Bierman, Lester Cole, Rig Lardner Jr., uh, John Howard Lawson, Albert Maltz, Samuel Ornitz, Adrian Scott. And you're not going to recognize most of these names, but the two big ones are Edward Dimitrik and Dalton Trumbo. Those are the 10. The group also uh, originally included uh, Bertolt Brecht, but he fled the country following his inquest. And then the remaining 10 were voted in contempt of Congress. And when they were voted in contempt, each of them got jail terms. So um, Trumbull went to prison. Uh, he got fined $1,000 and went to prison for a year. Uh, Edward Dimitrik was um, a fairly popular director at that time. Mm. Um, he's the other big name that was part of that group. He went into prison and eventually just broke in prison. He admitted he was a communist and then named 26 people. Ooh. He rolled. And then when they all got out, uh, the screenwriters that were part of that group all got kicked out of the Screenwriters Guild, which is really ironic because John Howard Lawson was one of the guys who founded it. <sighs> I mean, it would... And after that... Blacklist was in effect. So What a time to be alive. Oh, yeah. So during the blacklist, Trumbo couldn't work. None of these screenwriters could work. Mm -hmm. Anybody who was, you know, on the shit yeah, list yeah. could not work. So this is when Trumbo started fighting the system from within. Mm -hmm. His uh, family basically exiled themselves to Mexico. He started writing from his back. He Okay, his writing method, he used to sit in his bathtub with a typewriter and a parrot on his shoulder the parrot was a gift from kirk douglas the parrot would sit on his shoulder <laughs> of course and it he'd, was he'd sit there chain smoking cigarettes in his bathtub writing on his typewriter in the bathtub that sounds I, i'm sorry yeah. that sounds completely legitimate it's amazing right because uh, <laughs> lord knows i've written in stranger places and stranger situations so really <laughs> that sounds completely normal so he'd sit there in his bathtub and write and write and write and what he wound up doing was um he arranged with other writers who weren't on the blacklist for them to be fronts for him. So they would start delivering scripts that Dalton would have written. Yeah. And they, you know, they would they funnel would, the money back yeah. and put forward the script. And something like 30 scripts, 30 movies got made oh my goodness. from these 
you know, through this process. So there was a whole array of people he was using as fronts. And now where Frank King comes in, Frank King being one of the producers of Gun Crazy, he was one of the people where he knew Dalton was handing him the scripts and he was just basically making up names to put on the front or, you know, finding somebody at the front for Dalton Trumbo. Frank King actually made a business of taking all these blacklisted writers and getting all these great scripts from them for his cheap ass movies. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty great. What an enterprising person. Yeah. Yeah, smart. It's pretty amazing. Okay, guys, if you've seen the movie Trumbo, Frank King is the guy played by John Goodman. Oh, okay, okay. See, I haven't seen it yet, but I, I'm definitely going to now. There, Oh, there's a fantastic scene. Just in the trailer, um, this was the part that sold me on the movie. It's like, I think it was actually mentioned in the, the trailer that it was Frank King, and that John Goodman was playing Frank King, and he steps up from his desk with a baseball bat and starts smashing shit on his desk. Yes. It's like, <laughs> I'm going to see this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I saw I saw the trailers and I'm like, I need to watch this. No, I just it, haven't gotten around to it. It's a it's a good film. It's a good film. It's kinda hard to follow in the beginning if you're not super uh film up on the history of the House of Un American uh, Activities Committee. So but it eventually settles in and becomes easier to follow, even if you don't know the history. Gotcha. But anyway. So yeah, Trumbo existed for many years under the blacklist, still delivering scripts to Hollywood. And where it started to unravel is he started winning Oscars <laughs> for the things he was delivering. He delivered a script uh, for The Brave One, which won an Oscar. And so the person who was his front wasn't, you know, at the award ceremony. So somebody accepted instead. And it started going, huh, that's kind of weird. Hmm. And then, and then... It, you know, this happened a few times. Uh, the, uh, Dalton Trumbo didn't write this one, but Pierre Boulet, who, quote, wrote Bridge on the River Kwai, won an Oscar for that, even though he didn't speak English. <laughs> wow. So he was a front for somebody else. Yes. But, um, yeah, so all these blacklisted writers started to win Oscars through other people. And um, eventually, people started just showing up on Trumbo's door going, Will you write for us? Because we know you wrote this stuff. Like <laughs> Roman Holiday, that was Trumbo. Wow. And, and um, that was done under the blacklist and under, you know, somebody else's name. And eventually Kirk Douglas shows up on Trumbo's doorstep and goes, you should write Spartacus. And Kirk Douglas was like the first person who hired Trumbo openly again wow. after many, many years. And um, the same year, you know, very shortly after Kirk Douglas showed up, Otto Preminger showed up and said, you should write Exodus for me. And the two came out pretty much side by side. Nice. Nice. And then after that, Blacklist was broken and it was pretty much done. So he was such a badass. He broke the Blacklist. He broke the Blacklist. Amazing. With the help of many other people. Well, of course. But, of but course. he was but... like the the guy who was the masthead of the whole thing. Sure. But uh, yeah, Trumbo, he was around till about 1970, 1976. He was like a six pack a day smoker. He got lung cancer, but died of a heart attack. So, you know, he was just that kind of guy. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but he, at least before he passed away, he got retroactive Oscars for his work. Oh, which that's very nice. nice. And uh, yeah, yeah. So this was one of the blacklisted scripts of... 
Dalton Trumbo. Nice. So that was That's that was what I was so very happy about. It's like, yeah, yeah. yeah, you have no way of knowing this is Dalton Trumbo script because it's not in the credits. It's like, yes. <laughs> oh, I'm I was so excited. <laughs> yeah, that was a good one. It's a good script. But yeah, this is this is um like if you see the movie Trumbo, it's very clear the stuff he was writing for Frank King was like I need the script in like three days. And he was just banging this shit out. Mm. So like I said, this is super pulpy. Um, it's, Which works so well for yeah. it, to be honest. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, it's fun. Um, it's not the most elegant script, but no. I'm sure he wrote this thing in a few days and just sent it off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was workable. It was mm-hmm. good. So did you have any final thoughts, Alien? Oh, my gosh. Gun crazy? Not really. It was just... Just a lot of good fun to sit and watch, and the climax was was excellent. Yeah, I like I like the climax. I like a lot of the quote action scenes. Yes, yeah. yes. Actually, I really dynamic. liked the way they handled the action. Yeah, I'm air quoting, which is so helpful on a podcast. <laughs> action scenes. <laughs> I, I just I like the way that they handled them without having them to having to have them be quite so involved i think is the word it still gave the sense of urgency Mm -hmm. without having it to be chaos yeah so i like that about this it's a good film fun fun movie yes so dear listeners if you uh didn't already watch it you really should it is Mm -hmm. it is a really interesting movie it is on the itunes it is it is on the itunes it is on the itunes store yeah, we didn't have any luck finding it anywhere else. No. But we'll we'll not for if, lack if we of find effort. another avenue, I will put it in the show notes. Otherwise, please join us next time when we view where the sidewalk ends. Yes, that should be fun. Yes, it, oh, it's a good one. I really like this one. So, uh, dear listeners, um, see if you can find a copy of where the sidewalk ends and join us next time. Until then, I am Melissa, and I've been joined by Allie. And see you at the movies. Bye. We hope you enjoy our film fixation. We'll see you next time on a noir education. Thank you for joining us for a real education noir. New episodes arrive on the 7th and 21st of every month. You can find our podcasts and social media feeds on our website at realedunoir.com. Special thanks to Tim Wick, Jeffrey Brown, and Chad Dutton for our theme music. If you like our show, you might also like our parent podcast, A Real Education, which discusses all genres of film. You can find it on the web at realedu.com. Thank you for listening. Until next time. But I've been kicked around all my life. And from now on, I'm going to stop kicking back. <laughs> <laughs>